Hello and welcome to Broadway Binge. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Hannah. And we are going to tell you the history of American musical theater by reviewing and ranking all of the most important musicals from Showboat to today. Today we'll be discussing West Side Story, finally, from 1957, which is a musical with music by Leonard Bernstein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, book by Arthur Lawrence, conceived and choreographed by Jerome Robbins, and produced by Hal Prince. I mean, I guess Hal Prince's contributions are less important than those other people, but I just want to give a sense that this is the star-studded creative team of Broadway history. When you say Hal Prince, I just think of uh, Prince Hal from Henry That's <laughs> in Shakespeare. Anyway, I've actually, that's what I have to contribute. That's funny. I've actually never made that connection. I, I wonder if that's well, like something he used to hear all the time or still does. Maybe... Maybe because he was a theater guy, or maybe not. Unclear. That's true, especially back in the like 40s when he was in college, there were just fewer plays to perform in the world. <laughs> so they probably yeah. had to do Shakespeare more just because they didn't have, uh, they couldn't put up all of the mediocre plays that college groups do now. Um, right. Forced I'll, to do I'll read. Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that was like a traumatic part of his childhood. Anyway, um, so West Side Story. Yes, yeah, so West Side Story, many consider this. Oh, wait. What? A good segue, because it's based on Romeo and Juliet, so I really feel like I've justified uh, how much I've derailed us already. Okay. No, anyway, you're right. That's that's true. And right? I don't think okay. we've talked about any show so far that is based on a Shakespeare play. Mm. Oh, Taming of, sure Taming of the Shrew. Taming of the Shrew. Immediately wrong. Um, well, Taming of the Shrew is a really problematic play, and Romeo and Juliet is uh, much more enjoyable. Less problematic. I'd say slightly less. Hannah, do you want to start off by telling us your experiences with Romeo and Juliet? I mean, I guess we can do that. Um, sure. I mean, I have done been in Romeo and Juliet twice. Um, I professionally. was in a production of Romeo. Yeah, professionally. Um, I played Balthazar once, which I think um, I think he's the most important character in Romeo and Juliet. Uh, he's the one that tells Romeo that Juliet's dead. Um, no, I played Balthazar and a lady at a party uh, when I was in college in a professional production of Romeo and Juliet. But this past summer, I was in a production of Romeo and Juliet where I played Benvolio and Lady Capulet, which was a really fun doubling. Um, so it's a show that is very near and dear to me. Yeah. Um, I saw the first one you were in. That was good. It sounds like <laughs> you had a better role in the second one. but uh, I did. Yeah. I thought I was very cute, mm-hmm. but who's to say, honestly? Um, I had puffy sleeves. Anyway, so West Side Story is based on Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like Lion King's based on Hamlet, you know? There's only a couple stories that exist in the world. That's right. And then there's also, like, the separate hero's journey story that you see in right. every single movie these days. Um, yep. But the forbidden love story, I mean, it's it's been done even on Broadway. I mean, just thinking of... Um, this is prob- In my opinion, this is probably the best musical we've talked about so far. But thinking back to the worst musical we've talked about so far, <laughs> The Pajama Game, um, <laughs> that was also forbidden romance between a union... Yeah. A union, a woman who's like sort of the union boss of her local factory, and the man who's brought uh-huh. in to be the foreman. Um, you could say, I mean, forbidden love stories surely existed before Romeo and Juliet, but you know, Romeo and Juliet is kind of the quintessential one, and you can kind of maybe draw a line from that to Pajama Game. Maybe I'm sure the creators of Pajama Game would sometimes refer to it as a Romeo and Juliet story. I have no evidence of this. I'm just sure they did because that's how people talk about forbidden romance. But this was much more explicit. Like the characters in this and the characters in Romeo and Juliet match up much more one-to-one. Yeah. I mean, for me, I rewatching the film. I've seen um, West Side Story a number of times, but I was just rewatched the film to talk about it today. Um, And I was struck by like the Doc Friar Lawrence thing yeah it seemed really clear to me yeah which i just like i guess i knew but hadn't thought about in a while so 
And it's easy to not think about, like, it's easy to read Romeo and Juliet in high school English and then just have West Side Story something that's been your life since you're a kid, but never actually, like, spend the time to think about how do the people match up one-to-one. Right. One. Yeah, uh, well, then, does that make, like, Anita is sort of a cross between, like, Lady Capulet and the nurse? And the nurse, also yeah. Is, yeah, but also is sort of like if Benvolio was friends with Juliet. No, that doesn't really make sense. I don't know. Anita's, like, honestly my favorite part of the, yeah. the story, so... Mm-hmm. It's not really one-to-one. I think, I don't know if this is blasphemous, I think in some ways it improves on West Side, or sorry, in some ways West Side Story improves on uh, Romeo and Juliet, or at least updates it in a, a way that isn't just, you know, like using modern language and like putting everyone in like modern clothes. Like it, it really takes it and sets it in a setting. That... I mean, I'm unwilling to cede that, but I, from maybe a plot structural perspective, I can understand that like it's doing a slightly different thing structurally that perhaps you prefer. I'm willing to frame it yeah. that way. <laughs> and I think another interesting distinction is Romeo and Juliet is often misunderstood by um, like angsty teenagers as being this great love story. And you're supposed to sort of aspire to be like, like pe- like a lot of teenagers like, Oh, I want my Romeo. You're like, I want to be like Romeo and Juliet, but that's completely not what Shakespeare was trying to get yeah, at. It takes place in like two and a half days, <laughs> three days. Yeah. I mean, am, yeah. am I correct in saying that Shakespeare was sort of saying to the audience, like, Romeo and Juliet are stupid and, like, little kids? No, I don't think he thinks they're stupid, but I think he think it's about, like, I don't know, love in a toxic environment. Like, they don't fall in love slowly. They fall in love impulsively. So it's not, like, the greatest, like, love affair. It's just, like, an instant, I don't know, sexual attraction. Do they even really fall in love? Because he was, like, mooning over Rosaline, like, at the beginning of the Rosaline. Pl- <laughs> Rosaline. <laughs> Rosaline. <laughs> whatever Um, i'm sure neither of us are using the op no this is great because i know more about shakespeare than i do about musical theater so this is a fun um i feel i feel really i feel less uh in the dark than i usually do Mm because i know something about (laughs) romeo um yeah i don't know i mean that's up to debate it depends on the production i've seen versions where it's like super uh like yes we're in love i've seen versions where it's like nah like we just want to bang um I don't know. I mean, I okay. So watching West Side Story, rewatching the film, I like, I'd forgotten how quick it was that they fell in love. And in some ways, like, I find that aspect of the story challenging in a way that, like, in Romeo and Juliet's time, like, they're very young. Also, the rules of courtship are super different. So I kind of buy that it's a like, well, you're the first person I've been attracted to this way, so I guess it's forever. In a way that watching West Side Story, where like, you know, ostensibly like it's a lot, it's a, a much freer time. Um, they meet and they meet at a dance and then he visits her window and then that's like, that's it for them. Yeah. It's, it's, Romeo and Juliet is much more about Romeo and Juliet, the characters, whereas West Side Story, I feel like is more about the sharks and the jets. Like, it's almost Mm. as if the main characters in this are Riff and Bernardo, um, Mm. who are just Mm -hmm. sort of trying to deal with managing these really angry kids filled with emotion who just want to explode and they have to sort of manage that and also fight with yeah. each other and like bernardo has to deal with the whole immigrate like almost it seems to me almost as if bernardo and anita are the main characters of this show mm. and then tony and maria are just the instigators who drive the plot forward and are the reason why everything happens but really it's mm-hmm. how does anita and bernardo and riff and then later on the other jets how do they deal with tony and maria's yeah nonsense it's not nonsense like i'm i you know you root for them they're they're good kids they're the only two who sort of see past all of this like gang rivalry but 
Right. It's it's different. I mean, maybe you have a different take, but when I watch Romeo and Juliet, I'm much more directly invested in Romeo and Juliet's story. No, I think that makes sense. Yeah. It feels like it's more it's like a catalyst for another thing in West Side Story. I agree with that completely. You don't like spend a lot of time getting to know like Montague Sr. in like uh, Romeo and Juliet. Although, I mean, it's funny because you don't meet, you really don't meet Anita's parents, not Anita's parents, excuse me. Um, Maria. Maria's parents at all, which is interesting. I really love the scene where um, Anita's scolding her partner for like trying to be the parents to Maria. And it's, I don't know. It made me Bernardo, think about like, yeah, yeah like when Bernardo's like, telling her not to go out. I don't know. It made me think about, uh, I don't know, family and culture at that time, I guess, in a way that I'd forgotten was present in the story. Yeah. Anyway, we should probably get into, like, the nuts and bolts. Because I have just, like, a lot of thoughts about West Side Story and its plot and the characters, but I feel like we have much material. Yeah. So, (laughs) just so everyone knows, we're probably going to cut this episode up into two and release it in two subsequent weeks. Because there's just a lot to cover in terms of the background. We haven't had a lot of musicals recently that have sort of advanced Broadway as a medium in the way that some of the earlier ones like Showboat in Oklahoma did. This is another one of those. So we're going to need to talk about what West Side Story did for musicals. We have a lot more information on the background of West Side Story and how it came together. Because Lawrence, Robin, Sondheim, Prince, everyone involved has given Bernstein. They've all given interviews extensive interviews i like so the books that i have about musical theater history and the internet there's a lot more material that we can speak from also this is as good a time as any to really dive deep into the biographies of characters like sondheim and prince people Mm -hmm. who we've sort of alluded to so this first episode um i think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the people involved in the production itself and hopefully we'll have time you know to get into a little bit of discussion of the show and then probably a whole second hour just really talking about the songs, the construction, the plot, all of that sort of stuff. Love it. Great. Well, let's get to it. Now that we've sort of like had a false start with talking about Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. That was which good. I think is a nice, it's a nice prologue. Yeah, I, I guess we're going in chronological order. So first we have to talk about the 1600s or late 1500s. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to yeah, talk great. about the 1940s. So. Just a nice little jump. We move to 1947. <laughs> um, our dear friend Jerome Robbins has only three years ago done um, with Bernstein. They just did On the Town. Um, in last uh-huh. week's mini-sode, I talked about how later on there was Wonderful Town and um, uh-huh. Candide by Bernstein. Or Bernstein. Bernstein. <laughs> Bernstein. I love Wonderful Town. Sidebar. Oh, really? I was like shitting all over yeah. it in the mini-sode. I don't know if you listened. <laughs> I saw it. I saw it on Broadway when I was like little. I don't know. I uh, thought it was fun. <laughs> the seeing something on Broadway when you're little definitely gives you a positive. Yeah, it helped. Okay. Anyway, so, okay. Um, so he just done Wonderful Town. No, he just did On the Town. So we're, we're, town we're way back here. So Jerome Robbins went to Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence. And Lawrence was a playwright at the time who is of, you know, some renown. Renown. And, uh... <laughs> Do you know how? Rosaline. <laughs> Rosaline, Rosalind. Um, and he really wanted to do a contemporary version of Romeo and Juliet. And the idea was that it was going to be between an Irish Catholic family and a Jewish family on the lower east side of Manhattan called East Side Story. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> What? Yeah, because I guess everyone involved in this team was basically Jewish. Um, right. And even the people they were going to later add to the team, like Sondheim, was also Jewish, or at least raised Jewish. I don't know how religious mm-hmm. all these people were. This was back in the 40s, so the sort of just culture of New York was even different than it would be 10 years later when they were really rethinking this. And the idea was that this would be during the Easter Passover season, 
and oh my God. the girl was a Holocaust survivor who had emigrated from Israel, and it was going to be centered around the anti-Semitism of the Catholic Jets towards the Jewish Emeralds. So I guess still street gangs, but it's it's really interesting. Or at least, I mean, yeah. and all this information is coming from interviews uh, with Bernstein. So, I mean, all these people... We're, there's going to be a lot of questionable claims made in some of these interviews, especially anything you ever hear Sondheim say, like that happened back in the 40s or 50s. You'll notice every time Sondheim ever talks about something that happened where he was working with someone else on a show, he always is like the hero of every story. And since he is so good, I do tend to believe him. But at the same time, like he probably only tells the stories that make him look good. So, so t- take take all these stories with a grain of salt is what I'm saying because every. <laughs> Anytime there's an interview with someone, they want to make themselves seem like the one who was correct and convinced everyone else on the team that they were wrong. So um, this is going to be about um, Irish Catholics and Jews. Lawrence agreed, um, and they didn't really have a lot going on in terms of like lyricists or anything, but they realized that there was already a really popular play called A.B.'s Irish Rose, which is actually one of the longest-running things in Broadway history, especially back then. And it was a comedy about um, an, a Catholic girl and a Jewish guy, or vice versa, um, and because of that, they thought East Side Story was too similar and decided to not oh, continue on this idea. So they sort of dropped the idea for almost a decade. Then suddenly in 1955, there was a producer, Martin Gable, who wanted to make this uh, musical with a book by Lawrence. And Lawrence still at this point, now it's almost 10 years later, Lawrence still has not written the book of a musical. So Lawrence yeah. wanted – it was about an opera singer who realizes he's homosexual – and Lawrence is like, sure, I'll write the book. Let's get Robbins and Bernstein back on board because we were going to work together. But then Robbins said, you know what? If the three of us are going to work on a show, let's go back to East Side Story. Let's pick up where we left off. I like that idea better. So they all uh-huh. they all agreed. Um, and at this point, they got Stephen Sondheim on board. So originally, the lyricists were going to be Betty Comden and Adolph Green, who you might remember from On the Town. They were in the cast and in the lyrics. Uh, but they right. were busy doing some other things, um, other projects already. So they got this kid named Stephen Sondheim, who'd never done anything before on Broadway. He had this kid. Yeah, he was a kid. He was a kid. He was in his mid twenties, and he had just written a show called Saturday Night Music and Lyrics that was supposed to open in the fall of '55, and it ended up not opening because the producer died. So it was just a, oh, a bummer. Jesus. It opened off Broadway in the year 2000, Saturday Night, and got like. Eh, reviews but Sondheim was like didn't care because you know this is just like a show he wrote when he was a kid so they had him play some of Saturday Night and they said okay um Lawrence said I don't like your music but I do like your lyrics so come on board join the team and at this point let's take a little bit of a detour and talk about Stephen Sondheim I'll catch you up to date on where he came from so Stephen Sondheim was born in 1930 which is not that long before this, so he would be 25 when they started that's working on this together. He would be our age. Yeah, wow, that's true. Also, today is Easter Passover, so I just want to say, well, it's Easter. Yesterday was Passover. That's right? true. I mean, it's still Passover. Great. Passover's ongoing. It's still Passover. Yeah. Great. <laughs> really doing a good job right now. With my yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But just wanted to say, earlier you were talking about the Easter Passover conflict, and I just felt that it was uh, pertinent. Okay, continue. That's very true. Um, <laughs> so Sondheim, um, basically came from a dysfunctional family. His parents hated each other. His mother hated him. She once wrote in a letter that her only regret in life was giving birth to Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> what? So. What? Like, no, true? yeah, yeah, that's true. Or at least he told us Does it's true. Does she still feel that way? Um, well, they were estranged for like the last two decades of her life and he didn't go to her funeral. 
So. Oh my god. So that was like a big so it was never Freudian re- thing, I guess, in his life. His hatred of his mother. It was unresolved. Wow. Wait, that I have to think through that. That's wild. Mm-hmm. I didn't know he had mommy issues. Yeah. And his dad, they were never close. Um, his dad remarried like another woman and they just never were really close. He had stepbrothers from his dad who like they weren't. It just huh. wasn't, it wasn't a close family, but he had a really close friend named James Hammerstein who happened to be the son of uh-huh. Oscar Hammerstein II from Rogers and Hammerstein. So Hammerstein sort of stepped in as the father figure for Stephen Sondheim. And Hammerstein is such a great lyricist. Sondheim wanted to be a great lyricist. And it really started the mentorship at about age 10 is when they first met. And um, Sondheim would go see all of Hammerstein's shows. And at this point, at age 10, it's 1940. So he would have been um, about you know 13 years old when Oklahoma came out. And he really took to these Hammerstein shows. He really, you know, learned at the altar of Hammerstein. At one point, he wrote a song. He wrote a musical for his little school called By George. And all of the, all of the kids at Sondheim School loved By George. So he took it to Hammerstein and he said, can you evaluate this as if you had no knowledge of the author? And Hammerstein told Sondheim, this is the worst musical I've ever seen. But if you want to know why it's terrible, I'll tell you. So they spent the rest of the day going over Sondheim's first child musical, and Sondheim later has said in an interview that in that afternoon he learned more about songwriting and the musical theater than most people learn in a lifetime. Wow. So he continued, you know, sort of like writing musicals that weren't meant for the light of day just for Hammerstein to sort of see and review, and that's basically where he learned about lyrics. He learned music. He went to Williams College and... um, was in the theater program there learned about music from that area although he didn't really Sondheim didn't become famous for his music until much later in the 60s uh, right. but this whole time he's sort of continuing to hone his lyrics which he was able to crystallize into like top tier form you know in his 20s um, pr- mm-hmm. pretty quickly so that's where Sondheim's at he's recently graduated college he has met Hal Prince they met at the opening night performance of South Pacific that's why it's good to go to opening nights if you want to be in the industry that's right have you found this to be true for you yeah it's actually like a thing that they teach theater students um I mean okay so right like I didn't study theater at Penn well I did but I didn't major in theater at Penn but I was talking to my partner about like University of the Arts and apparently they encourage students to um, University of the Arts is a college in Philly um, and they encourage students to go to like opening nights like they actually I think there's a course they take where they have to go to a certain number of opening nights and introduce themselves to people like it's actually a course requirement anyway is this do you think they're yeah. gonna teach you this kind of stuff at Brown <laughs> I don't I hope not <laughs> yeah Hannah well, just got into an MFA program so I did. Yeah. It's fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Very excited. Woo. Yes. So I guess. <laughs> Just a little sidebar about our lives. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, well, it's relevant. People are always questioning what are our uh, credentials. Like, who are, Do we have any credentials? <laughs> like, Jeremy, every time I tell my friends I'm doing this podcast, they're like, you don't know anything about musical theater. And I'm like, that's not true. <laughs> you do. You're, you're, you're the one with the experience. Um, and sure. And I'm the one who does the research. Because we always yeah, tell people that you're a professional actress, but that doesn't mean anything. There's tons of people who Not call really. themselves professional actors who are actually garbage. <laughs> so now we have right. like an external um, objective criteria to point to that you're not just like garbage. Mm. Um, yeah. Up until this point, I could have been garbage, yeah. but now, now you've I'm been just garbage. So. Wait, are you wearing a brown sweater right now? <laughs> I'm actually am. You're wearing a brown my mom got t-shirt. it for me. That's yeah, such a parent like move. A... Every time I get yeah. into college, my parents buy me a t-shirt from it. Okay, so it's true that, like, before I accepted, I was like, hey, mom and dad, like, I need um, space to, like, make this decision and kind of just sit with it and, like, just give me some space. And, like, it's really good news, but I just, I need 
you know, to, to process. And they visited Philly like the next week, not because I of me getting in, like for another reason. And they showed up with like all of this stuff that they bought at the bookstore. And I was like, great. That's classic <laughs> yeah. parent move. Classic. Anyway. Um, <laughs> all right. So I guess now we've gotten so, the team together. Um, I don't feel the need to go like deep into Arthur Lawrence's uh, background. He, uh, I feel like they're all for- there should be like Fellowship of the Rings music playing when they like the whole team is a sign or I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah. that's what I'm picturing. Basically, all of these people were born in New York City, and all of them were Jews. That's what you need to know. Wait, just real quick. If it were Lord of the Rings, who would Sondheim be in the Fellowship? Mmm. Uh, that's... Is he sort of the young whippersnapper? Like, is he Frodo? No, because Frodo's too pure. Sondheim thinks too highly of himself. Who's kind of okay, arrogant? Is he like Boromir? Boromir? And then Boromir, Boromir dies early. Is he like... It's tough. Maybe, Gim- maybe he's like Aragorn because he hasn't accepted who he is yet. Maybe I feel like Hal Prince <laughs> is the Aragorn because like he's like right. he's the one who's won all the Tonys. He's the Prince of Broadway, uh-huh. and Aragorn uh-huh. is the king. Wow, of, of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> is he Gandalf before he becomes Gandalf? The oh, White? you know what? He is Gandalf the Grey <laughs> because he's also really surly and sarcastic about everyone, and he's like low key mm-hmm. the most talented person in the entire group. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Good call. I wasn't right. even thinking Gandalf. I was, I was thinking, yeah, I mean, uh, surprising, because he's young, but still. Yeah. Um, That's fine. Great. Okay, thank you. I'm really glad we did okay, that. Okay, we're good. Um, so basically, <laughs> the gang is all together now, and they decide they want to go forward with East Side Story, but the problem is that it's just, there's just something about it. <laughs> I can't it. get over East Side Story. I know. And it was the Lower East Side as opposed to Upper West Side is what we're going to get with West Side Story, um, which is funny, because the Upper West Side is now known for, like, being this, you know, area where elderly Jews live, but at, right. at at the time, there was a lot of news stories about juvenile delinquent games. It was uh, like a recent social phenomenon. It was all over the front pages of the newspapers. A lot of Puerto Rican immigrants were, um, you know, involved in like turf wars, often with the, you know, preceding white kids. And the Upper West Side was not sort of like the bougie rich area it is today. But basically what happened was around this time, uh, the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, which now is sort of like the centerpiece of the Upper West Side, started kind of making its campuses and sort of beginning to try to transform the neighborhood. And when you think of like gentrification now, like you think the the battle lines of that are, you know, like in Harlem or like, you know, in, in Brooklyn and West right. side, the Upper West Side is like the epicenter from which everything else moves. But at the time, the gentrification was, you know, about to happen. It happened in the 60s. You know, really right after the West Side Story movie came out is when you got all these, you know, sort of young kids uh, moving mm-hmm. into the Upper West Side who, like, you know, might have had some wealth. And it's those same young kids who moved in in, like, the mid-1960s as 20-somethings who are, like, sort of the same elderly Jews who now live there in their 60s, um, if you think about it that way, or, like, 60s and 70s and 80s. So um, it's unthinkable to think of all this, you know, like, murder and gang warfare in the Upper West Side. But, like, this is really just, like, the moment of it happening. Like, it hadn't been happening prior to the 50s, really, and it was going to go away really fast. But, like, right now, when West Side Story came out in 57, there was this gang warfare in the Upper West Side. It, like, really was there. Um, Hmm. So Lawrence decided that um, he would rather write about... So they were going to do it maybe about Mexican-Americans, but Lawrence was more familiar with Puerto Rican immigrants, so um, they talked to Robbins about this. Robbins was excited about the idea because it meant now instead of you know just generic ballet, he could do Latin American dancing. And Bernstein was really excited about the opportunity to write some Latin American music. Um, in Wonderful Town, we just talked about how there was a song called Conga, which is basically the act one closer. 
Um, and one of the only good songs in that show, in my opinion, but even not that great compared to what we would later go on to see from him. Correct. I agree with that statement. So, yeah, so they're all really excited about this idea, and um, they start rewriting the whole show. And basically, it took about two years. Comden and Green were out. Sondheim was in. Sondheim was unsure because he really wanted to write a full score. He didn't want to just write the lyrics, but Hammerstein convinced him he'd benefit from the experience. Sondheim luckily accepted because this is what put him on the map, so it's good for all of us that Sondheim said yes to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. And, yeah, they got rid of the whole Jewish and Catholic thing, basically just made, like, a generic white people against Puerto Ricans. Uh, Anton changed from an Irish-American to a Polish-Irish mix in the new show. Yeah, they, uh, Lawrence eliminated a lot of the Romeo and Juliet characters who had kind of been involved in the East Side Story draft, like Rosalind Mm. and the parents. Um, They were in the original drafts, but they were eventually cut. So we get to the Washington, D.C. tryouts, and it was a very successful show. Uh, Bernstein was also working on Candide concurrently, so there was sort of some material that was moving back and forth between the two shows, like Tony and Maria's duet, One Hand, One Heart. Yeah, Um, yeah. Eventually, it became Make of Your Hand, One Hand. We'll talk about why those lyrics changed later, um, because also Sondheim talks a lot about these lyrics in his book, Finishing the Hat, which is a great book. Um, Ah, a staple for any uh, coffee table owned by a musical theater lover, I think. Agreed. The staple. (laughs) Um, And Officer Krupke came from Candide, so it all sort of came together. We'll go into more... Interesting. I did not know that. Is that common knowledge? Is that a thing I should just know? No, it's not common. I didn't even know that, and I thought I knew all this stuff. But, yeah, basically it all came together. We'll go into more detail about, like, the specific history of each song as we talk about that song. But the moral of the story is um, the show was a pretty big hit, but not the biggest of hits. It ran for... Okay. Let's see. um, It ran for 732 performances, which we've seen musicals at this point. Not too shabby, but we've seen musicals at this point run for over 2,000 performances. Right, right. um, Including uh, My Fair Lady, which came out the year before this in 56. And... Critics liked it, but they didn't love it. They didn't really, it was so different from anything that had come before that critics didn't, I don't want to say they didn't understand it because that's kind of condescending, but it's often been said by newer critics that the 50s were not ready for this show. They didn't want a show Mm. like this as much. They thought it was too dark, too grim, and musical theater was supposed to be all light and happy. And the winner of Best Musical at the Tonys that year was The Music Man. That's so interesting. Yeah. Are we, also, are we doing Music Man next? I think we are, yeah. Great. <laughs> I have thoughts. Okay. Anyway, um, interesting. Huh. Hmm. All right, so I, I guess I'll say a little bit more about uh, Bernstein leading up to this, and then we can sort of dive into the songs Great. itself. Um, I love that. So Bernstein um, really loved the idea of merging sort of opera and musical theater and sort of creating this new American medium that was like a higher art than the previous musical theater because he was you know a conductor he conducted operas he conducted symphonies he wrote symphonies and operas and you can sort of see you have like wonderful town which is like very musical theater and you have candide which is just straight up operetta in the gilbert and sullivan style and he really wanted to sort of you know be the first person to nail this intermingling to the extent that you know porgy and bess had failed to do and um he really wanted to be the person. So he was guest hosting this TV show on uh, just one of the national TV channels at the time. Let's see what was it. Like you do. There was a show called Omnibus, um, which was you know a TV show focused on the arts. 
And Bernstein was speaking about the history of American musical comedy, just like we do on our podcast. Um, mm-hmm. And Basically, we're all the same. At this point, I think he'd already written on the town. And he was talking about how, this is the quote, We are in a historical position now, similar to that of the popular musical theater in Germany just before Mozart came along. In 1750, the big attraction was what they called the Zingspiel, which was like the Annie Get Your Gun of its day, star comic and all. This popular form took the leap to a work of art through the genius of Mozart. After all, the Magic Flute, which is by Mozart, is a Zingspiel, only it's by Mozart. We are in the same position. All we need is for our Mozart to come along. If and when he does, what we'll get will be a new form, and this can happen at any second. It is almost as if... It is our moment in history, and as if there's a historical necessity that gives us a wealth of creative talent at this precise time. Can you say Zingspiel again? Zingspiel. So, um, so Bernstein's telling all of America, hey, you know, I think we're about to have this great new merger of musical theater and opera that's about to happen, and all we need is for someone as good as Mozart to come along and write it. I wonder who that's going to be. Who do you think he had in mind? Oh, I don't know, Jeremy. What do you think? I think himself. So um, Himself, I think. Yeah, what a... That sounds like a dick. Yeah, but I guess, I don't know, everyone seems to like him, so, like, I guess you sort of just yeah. let it go. Like, if you're if he's, like, a nice guy in every other respect, then to this one sort of, like, secretly self-aggrandizing thing, I guess we can forgive him. Also, you know, that's okay. He's not wrong. Yeah. I mean, right? I don't know. No, he's is not he wrong. wrong? He, well, where he was wrong is that he sort of thought West Side Story was going to be the start of, like, a new thing in all musicals. There are going to be a ton of musicals like this, and there haven't mm-hmm. been a lot. I mean, to the extent that there have been sort of, like, half opera half musical theater sort of sung through shows you didn't really start getting that until like andrew lloyd weber in the yeah 70s and 80s if you can even call it that and i guess we'll get to that when we say is was it important but uh, mm-hmm. he didn't really he thought he was going to change broadway in the same way oklahoma had and he didn't yeah i mean i'm trying to think of like okay so in some ways west side story reminds me of oklahoma like the just i don't know the cowboy dance like reminds me a lot of the the sharks and the jets dance maybe that's sacrilegious to say no but like i just it felt like a similar form and so like i hear that he's like trying to blend opera i guess and that felt like a new element but i don't know like uh, yeah i guess the opera strains feel like special and new but i don't know what else about it feels like exceptionally new i guess it's like aggressively modern and dark that yeah felt... it's like more that he wanted to evolve the form rather than revolutionize it yeah. like oklahoma had yeah the music right. is much more serious and much more complex than any show we've talked about without question like, sure this is the most complex sure. music we've talked about and the it's plot so we have multiple characters dying and it's not like judd falling on his own knife kind of dying it's like yeah it's like people we like stabbing each other to death and like crying over dead yeah. bodies and dead bodies just like laying there on the stage while everyone runs away like this was it was too dark for like a lot of critics actually did not like the show because they thought it was too dark, which now sounds silly. We've got characters killing each other left and right on Broadway these days, but like this was totally new and people did not like it compared to a show like Music Man, which much more represented where Broadway was about to go in the 50s and 60s. Mm, so like we couldn't have had Next to Normal if not for <laughs> West Side Story. Yeah, I agree. I don't think we could have had Next to Normal without West Side Story, but to the extent Bernstein wanted broadway to immediately become like that yeah it didn't Mm -hmm. broadway in the 50s and 60s was like let's take music man and that's going to be the model for where we go next and it took a while for broadway to get back to like the west side story kind of situation and now we're like the children of west side story but in the 60s they would not have said that west side story was like the progenitor of what they were doing 
It's funny because I feel like we look, it's interesting because we don't talk about Music Man as being like the greatest musical of all time in the way that people are still obsessed with West Side Story as like the greatest musical of all time. You know? Yeah. I, I agree. Mm, yeah. I was going to say, do we want to talk a little more about like the original run of the show, like critical reception, like even like the casting of it? Yeah. Um, here, I'm just going to pull up that information. Yeah, so there were um, there were tryouts in Washington, D.C. and in Philadelphia uh, starting in August of 57, and then it moved to the Winter Garden Theater, which still exists. a good place. Um, I think they're doing... S- I didn't know it tried out in Philadelphia. They, like, previewed it here before it went to New York. Yeah, I actually didn't know that either. I knew about the D.C. tryouts, but according to Wikipedia, it also was briefly in Philly. Um, well, there you go. Then it went to the Winter Garden in September 26, 57, which right now School of Rock mm-hmm. is playing in there. I mean, I've never seen School well, of Rock. <laughs> it might be great or something. I feel like it's time for School of Rock to leave Broadway and to bring in some new blood, like... Yeah, I think that that is true. Yeah, like, I mean, like, the several years it's been up, like, that's enough. Like, I'm not I'm not trying that's to say it shouldn't have opened on Broadway. I'm just saying, like, mm. we could do better. I am trying to say it yeah. shouldn't have opened on Broadway. I mean, clearly also, people Angela Weber it. wrote the music. What? That's really weird. Yeah. Isn't that weird? I sort of, I haven't really enjoyed Andrew Lloyd Webber since Evita, to be honest. I, yeah, it's tricky. We'll get to we'll him. Get to I mean, him. he's... He for sure is, like, my... I don't know. I really fell in love with Lloyd Webber as a kid, and then... I also think that, like, he's really appealing to nine-year-olds for a reason, you know? No, I, th- I think you're yeah, right. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, yes, the production was directed and choreographed by Jerome Robbins, which had been done. We've talked about some instances of that. Jerome Robbins has done this before. Um, it has, it's not done a ton these days, and it wasn't even done a lot in those days, but Jerome Robbins was sort of such a force. Like, he conceived of the show, directed, choreographed. This was sort of his shindig. And all of these writers, mm-hmm. as famous as they are now, it's like they seem so famous and important, were sort of subordinate to Robbins in this instance. It was his. It was his ship. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Cast included Larry Kurt as Tony. The other role he'd be known for is in Company. Um, there was a guy, Dean Jones, who was the first Bobby in Company, and he's on the cast album. But really quickly after opening night, Hal Prince. Uh, got rid of Jones and brought in Larry Kurt. So Larry Kurt sort of the person who was there for the long run of company, but we'll never really mm. know how he sounded because he wasn't on the cast album. But So you have Larry Kurt as Tony, Carol Lawrence as Maria. She was someone who had gone to be pretty famous. Uh, Cheetah Rivera is Anita, and Rita Moreno played Anita in the movie. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Cheetah Rivera is kind of just theater royalty. Mm-hmm. There was not... So not a white person playing Maria on Broadway as well in the original that is correct um that yeah. was the case in basically the movie almost everyone other than rita moreno i don't want to say everyone in the sharks there were definitely a lot of ancillary sharks who were latino but um not maria so carol lawrence played um maria on broadway and was white that is correct and she was eventually replaced for the movie by natalie wood who is a huge superstar um also mm-hmm. white and she was dubbed in the movie. Mar- <laughs> Marnie Nixon dubbed Natalie Wood. And Marnie Nixon was the same person who dubbed Audrey Hepburn in um, My Fair Lady. So she was very famous. Interesting. For and also Rita Moreno was dubbed in the movie. She mostly sang her own stuff in America. That was all her. Um, and also in parts of A Boy Like That and in the Tonight Quintet. But in the beginning of A Boy mm-hmm. Like That, it was a little bit beneath her range. So they dubbed her as well in that movie. Uh, the person they had singing for her was Betty Wand. It's interesting that, like, I feel like the relationship to dubbing has changed. Like, it used to be just sort of very chill, and now I feel like it's shameful if you're mm-hmm. dubbed. Yeah. You know? Anyway. So wait, wait. So what year did the movie The movie come out, was Jeremy? in 61. Um, the, the show was in 57. 
the the show opens, it does it was, well. It opened, it was, but yeah, it was it for two years. It closed in 1959. Then they took it on tour right. around the country and then brought it back to the Winter Garden Theater for another 249 performances in 1960. Um, so, but it doesn't win the Tony, and it's not like haha Tony. Um, and <laughs> that's terrible. Um, and then they decide to make a film, and then it gets very big after the film. Correct, made, right? The f- because the film. On the one hand, maybe America was more ready for this sort of thing in 1961. It had only been four years, but you know, culture was changing. Um, it's also possible that just the movie—it's maybe it's just better for a movie medium. Um, I kind of. I mean, I feel like people were ready for it as a movie, and maybe in a way that they weren't ready for it as a as a. Musical. I agree. So I guess at this point, we've sort of gone over the history of it. Are we ready to really dive in? I'm ready to dive sure, in. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. All right, let me look at it. Yeah, so I think the reason why this is seen as one of the best musicals of all time might not actually be deserved by the underlying musical itself. I think it's just that this is one of the best movies of all time. I really believe that, like, of all time, one of the best. Mm. And I think the movie being so good makes people, and that's how people are familiar with West Side Story. They think, oh, this is a great musical. And then even if you go see a live production that you maybe don't like as much, you think, like, oh, well, whatever. Like, this is just a bad live production, but I know that the source material is good because the movie is so great. But maybe, yeah. I mean, maybe, like, the critical reception to the original stage version was not spectacular. Maybe the movie just is where it should be. Um, and it was directed by Robert Wise. And, I mean, if you do what Hannah and I have done, or even if you've ever watched any sort of older <laughs> musical from, like, movie musical from the 50s, like Oklahoma, Showboat, any of those 50s mm-hmm. things, you can just see the quality of the directing by Robert Wise is just night and day. Yeah. From what we in the fifties, you'd sort of get everyone standing in a line. You'd have the camera shoot them. There'd be some interesting and experimental shots, but it was very much not artful. The cinematography was not interesting. It was just shoot the action. Yeah, the level of cinematography for me was like like the way the film is edited. Literally, it's like it's it's edited like a movie, not yeah. like a musical. It's basically, edited, yeah, which is I think it's edited like a movie today. Yeah. Like like Robert, mm-hmm. I mean Robert Wise is known for being one of the all time great directors and. He really, I mean, I don't want to say it was just him, but him and other people in the 60s, and especially later on in the 70s, but we're sort of seeing filmmaking just upgrade, up its game, hardcore, from where we were even just a few years ago, to the extent that, like, this movie is almost, it's unrecognizable from some of the other movies. I mean, My Fair Lady movie came out around this exact same time, but that just looks older, because it's... It looks so much yeah, older, yeah. there's a dynamic yeah. camera that's moving mm-hmm. around. You know, there's helicopter shots of New York City at the beginning. Um, <laughs> like, there's long takes where the camera will just follow the dancers up and down a street without any cuts. Um, it's just things yeah. that we sort of take for granted in movies today. It's like, this is how you shoot a movie. But the people who are shooting movies in the 40s and 50s couldn't even conceive of some of this stuff. And, yeah. And particularly, like, applying it to a musical, I think, was, like, revolutionary. I mean, even, like... You know, I really enjoyed the musical version of Oklahoma, but yeah, you make a good point. Like, literally the types of shots implemented were just super different. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the movie was actually mm-hmm. co-directed officially by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins. The idea would be that Robbins would direct the dances and Wise would direct everything else. But there was, like, a lot of fighting on the set. Jerome Robbins is notoriously a person who's very difficult to get along with, very control freak. And eventually Robbins stormed mm-hmm. off the set and never came back. So Wise ended up directing the, the dances as well. Using Robin's choreography, Robin's assistant stuck around to like impart Robin's choreo, which was very similar to the choreo from the stage yeah. version. And then Wise directed it. I will say like... Sorry, basically, go ahead, go ahead. Wise basically, Robert Wise basically directed 
just about the whole movie, but he gets co-directing credit with Robbins. And you do need to sort of give Robbins that credit because this this thing was his baby. He did choreograph it, so yeah. Yeah, it's his. I mean, I was struck watching it by how like the choreography seemed very present in like the first twenty minutes. That's not true. In more than that, but like by the like latter third of the movie, it felt like that sort of the musical theater melted away, and it was really just like naturalism or real not really naturalism, but yeah, you know what I mean. Like there was less dancing, which. I don't know. Yeah. I was struck by like the opening fight sequences are really dancey. And then as it starts to get further in, like we kind of lose some of that vocabulary. And I wonder if that's Jerome Robbins walking off the set or that was just like a stylistic choice or if that's, I mean, I feel like that's also true in the musical. You you know what I mean? Like it it gets a little more, um, less balletic and like a little more of it. I think that's a good point. I mean, I don't know exactly like what the filming order was and when he walked off set, but it is definitely noticeable yeah. that just the language of how the gang acts is very dancey in the beginning. They sort of dance from place to place. And then in the end, I mean, yeah. it might be just part of the tone of the show. In the end, when there is dancing, right. it's sort of isolated things. Like in Cool, has some of the best dancing in the whole yeah. show. But it's surrounded uh-huh. by them just like scurrying yeah, around on this. It might also be that like when they're dancing around in the beginning, they're sort of in their element. They're in their environment. They feel comfortable and confident and cocky as they dance around and assert their like masculine dominance. And then in the second half yeah. of the show, they're terrified and afraid. So we just see them running from shadow to shadow because they they don't feel right. that calm. Mm-hmm. So in, in that way, the dance is sort of the language of how they're feeling. It's It works. Like you see they, they're no longer like mm-hmm. swaggering and snapping down the street anymore when they're scared yeah oh man i have so many thoughts about the show all right where do, let's uh where do you want to start let's let's just go right in okay i mean i just want to start with this because like i struggled with this in the show and rewatching the movie i was like i really struggle with um sympathizing for any of the jets after they assault anita i just like i watched that scene and i'm like i mean obviously it's that's messed up and like they're committing like an act of sexual violence against a woman which is horrible but like then afterwards doc's like oh like you make this world a lousy place and then they're like we didn't make it and i'm like yes you did (laughs) that's how i feel so like i totally i think i like can identify with the like um or not identify with but sympathize with the like the aggression and like the violence and the the like unrest and also even like a lot of it being about the racism and then like i just i just hate that part I, yeah. <laughs> um yeah i don't know and maybe that's like a you know like the era we're in now like that particular element maybe has aged particularly poorly i don't i don't know not to like no i think i don't think we're supposed to I don't, worse, I don't think we're supposed but, to sympathize so i kind of hate the jets too other than um other yeah, than i mean i kind of like riff. biff like i kind of get you're really wow hannah sorry Back i'm thinking about fucking <laughs> not when i say biff <laughs> Um, no, I was thinking like Biff and Happy from, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, Oh, that Biff. You're right. You're right. (laughs) A lot of Biffs. Anyway, Riff, who, um, I love Riff. Like Riff's usually my favorite character. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's not true. Anita's usually my favorite character, but, um, yeah, but like, I don't know. I just, I really hate that part and I hate, like, I don't understand why that has to happen and like. I have a hard time like sympathizing at I don't, all for that. So I don't think we're that. supposed to. And you know, it's like every single one of them is sort of despicable, with the exception of Riff, Ice, who sings cool yeah. and replaces Riff, and is noticeably not there in mm-hmm. the assault scene. Um, and mm-hmm. then Baby John, who um, mm-hmm. 
they sort of like pick up and use in the assault scene. It's really just, it's really terrible. It's um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I sort of hate, like the people like Action and um, A Rab, like all those people. I really hate and. I don't yeah, think I, I don't just, think we're supposed I, yeah. to like them is the thing. Like I don't think we're supposed to feel good about mm-hmm. them. So that doesn't make me like the show any yeah. less. They're sort of villains. And it's kind of like Riff and Tony and Ice are like trying really hard to rein in these terrible people. Um yeah. and like ultimately they fail. But also like inciting them to violence, right? Like we can't let Riff off the hook. I don't know. Yeah, we can't let Riff, yeah, like, Riff is think, very like, flawed. But but he's more yeah. sympathetic because it's like he really thinks that there's no other solution here. He's not trying to do individual harm to, like, any one person. It's just, like, he's never known anything but the street, and he's never had the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, that's all what Officer Krupke's all about. Like, the system has utterly failed him, and all he knows how yeah. to do is just hold on to his street. We notice he is not the one sort of, like, giving racist invective, which is not letting him off the hook because he's in charge of a gang that is all about kicking out Puerto Ricans. Um, But it's like from him individually, he sort of like just wants control of of something and that something is like the streets. Yeah, like I kind of like, I can, I, um, I don't connect with, but like I understand like the narrative of the like, the need for control and that being like this thing that's to me is like deeply American. Like I like, I think that that's like a really strong element in the piece um so yeah i get all that and like the toxic masculinity and the violence and yeah so like i don't know i get that but yeah rewatching, like i remembered that scene and then was like i just hate like i hate these people like i i really think that they're terrible people um they were also terrible people before that moment but yeah it made them like really i think that's fine like if you think of any movie that like where racism is like a plot element the fact that like someone is racist or sexist and is like like a terrible person does not make it a bad movie like it just means it's like it's a difficult mm-hmm. movie it's not happy yeah it's a difficult movie yeah i guess i'd like i feel like we uh i don't know i i forgot like how brutal the yeah because like is. you sort of want it to uh, go and think like oh this is an old classic musical that means it's going to be a good time but that's not what it's about it's it's about sort of confronting yeah. the audience in the 50s like hey there's some real bad shit going on on the upper west side right now maybe we should all look at that like maybe we should like yeah and like they're bad people they're just bad people yeah yeah i mean okay so what so tony's like a violent kid and he's in the gang and then he like meets a beautiful woman and no because he tony got away from the gang before this he realized how childish and silly it all was and went to work for doc yeah yeah. um right so Mm -hmm. tony's already out um and then with the Mm -hmm. sharks um you almost can't blame them like they had to move somewhere and they moved here and they're just trying right. to do what they can so um you can, right. i i do sympathize with the sharks even though i think bernardo you know obviously makes a bunch of terrible choices that just you know like amps everything <laughs> up and makes it makes it I worse love yeah bernardo. um i do too he's so good in the film so, yeah in the film he's played by george takiris i'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it he's mm-hmm. actually he's not um latino either he's greek um and mm-hmm. We should talk about yeah, that. Yeah, he probably. played Bernard. I th- believe he actually played Riff in the London version. Yeah. Really? Um, and then eventually also might have played Bernardo at some point here. I'll look that up. So, yeah, George, he played Riff in the London version, and then they just cast him as Bernardo in the film. So, like, I saw West Side Story for the first time ever in London uh, as a kid. And uh, basically, anybody who wasn't white just played a shark. <laughs> 
Um, which is unfortunate. Like, you know, yeah, that's just really unfortunate. Um, I feel like we've talked about this with other musicals, but because it's like a piece about race violence, like I feel like it for sure is rarely, only really recently, like, I mean, we had the revival that Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote some of the, mm-hmm. read some of the lyrics and wrote them in Spanish, um, where we actually had like representation of like Latinx bodies playing these roles. Um, yeah, it's just, it, I don't know. I think that like, no, it definitely warrants mentioning, and I don't think there should ever be a production of West Side Story, a professional production, again, um, with yeah. like you know white people playing sharks. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna hold it against the show itself as a musical, especially because they did try to cast sure. some Latinx people as sharks. I mean, Chi Rivera, most, which like I'm not saying like that's all they should have done. Some, but like. Right. It's, it's a step. Yeah. No, it, it was a I mean, step. They I could have easily it. not cast Cheetah Rivera, but they did. And then they mm-hmm. cast Rita Moreno in the movie. She's so good. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, I Did we put yeah. America as one of our top songs in a... Did we? I think we should have. I think it was somebody's I think it was your mention. honorable mention, and then I picked Tonight yeah. as one of my top songs, but... But then would. I don't care about that. That song. was then I went and watched the movie for this episode after we recorded that, and I realized like no, actually America mm-hmm. should be. I want to live in America. It's so it's, good. It's an amazing song, and that's also really yeah. Stephen Sondheim's big coming out party. Like like hey everyone, like look at me, I am the best lyricist in the world. Like no one had heard of this guy Sondheim before, and then he just rolls out there and writes the best lyric in Broadway history so far at that point with America. Shall we play it? Yeah, we better. I'm going to play from the... um, Actually, so this is an interesting story. So I'm going to play from the original Broadway version, the original Broadway cast of America, before then playing a little bit of the movie. And I don't think... I'm imagining that you yourself have not listened to the original Broadway cast in a while and maybe not seen the live version. So you're going to be a little bit surprised by what you hear, I think, actually. Oh, dear. Not in a bad way, just like surprised. (laughs) <laughs> Here we go. Lights up on Washington Heights. <laughs> Not lights up on Washington Heights. It's, it's, the, it's the same little quava <laughs> thing in the beginning. That's terrible. Wow. I mean, yeah. I'm sure Lin Manuel. No, he probably that. was intentional. Different lyrics. Wow. I'm going to switch to, for the good part of the song, I'm going to switch to the um, movie version. But basically, what happened was um, the original idea that Lawrence and Sondheim had was to have, as it is in the movie, with Anita singing about how she likes America and Bernardo singing about how he doesn't like America or how he thinks there's problems with America. And um, the problem was that Robbins really wanted to do an all-women dance number. Just like a bunch of women, you know, Uh doing like Latin dancing together. 
And so he right. basically pressured them and convinced them to invent this new Bernardo stand-in character. I don't even know the woman's name because it's not that important. But it's just one of the shark women just sort of steps in out of nowhere. She's barely been relevant in the in the musical up to this point. <laughs> and it's like, I'm going to be the person who sings the parts about how America's not great. And then later on, mm-hmm. the movie came around. And at this point, Robbins was like basically out of it. And just the whole time wasn't as important to the making of the movie. So Sondheim kind of stepped back in. Well, this is how Sondheim tells it in Finishing the Hat. Like, who knows how much control he really right. had. But Sondheim's basically like, at this point, Robbins is kind of out, so he steps back in and is like, no, we should have Bernardo um, actually be mm-hmm. the person who sings because, like, Bernardo is the character who we have an emotional connection to. Okay, I'm remembering now when I see, when I saw the musical, yeah, it's like one of the other girls who is singing to Yeah, Anita. and I'm much, first of all, I think the men dancing is, like, really engaging and... Um, mm-hmm. very, I, I love the contrast between the women dancing and the men dancing I think the idea that like it's better to have all women dancing in that scene is not true I think it's way better to have Bernardo mm-hmm. singing because then we get to know him better as a character instead of learning yeah. about the opinions of a I random agree. person so like definitely I'm with Sondheim and it is actually I think a shame that even though the movie has this better version even in the modern stage versions like the 09 revival they still have the random woman sing the Bernardo role Yeah, I think to the yeah. detriment which the I mean it's fine but yeah, I think it's, like, yeah. more... I, I agree, it's, like, more interesting to get to know... It's just one of a series moment. of things that, like, maybe if we didn't have the movie, we wouldn't mind. But since we do have the movie, there's a series of choices, and we'll right. discuss more later, that when you do watch the live version, like, the 09 revival, which I saw in Chicago, by the way, on tour, um, mm-hmm. you spend the whole time thinking, like, oh, like, this is a fine choice, but it's cl- it's a clearly a worse choice than the movie. The movie's been out for 50 years... Like, why can't they just change it? Like, we know that there is a better version of West Side Story that exists than this version. Why are you not just making it better when we know for a fact that there is a better version? And it just, it it makes the whole experience frustrating unnecessarily, Um, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, a mark against the musical. But I still sort of don't hold it against it because, like, to me, like, the perfect version exists. It's the movie. So, like, that's the version I'm judging to an extent, perhaps unfairly. But... Yeah. No, I hear that. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I feel like the fact that, like, the two are in conversation is exciting. Like, I feel like that's rare that, like, a musical will happen and then the film will come out so soon that, like, there's actually a conversation about, like, the piece mm-hmm. in that way. And I feel like that's just, like, a different time where Hollywood and Broadway were in conversation, which we've talked yeah. about before. In a way that, like, they're not going to, like, so, like, they made the movie of Frozen. I mean, I don't know, though. They made Frozen and they just, I can't believe I'm even thinking about comparing what is that story to Frozen. But I guess that is a movie that just came out that there's now a musical version of, so. Yeah, it is interesting. Usually when there's a musical based on a movie, it's not so fast. They really got that one out quickly. Maybe it could have, if the reviews are correct, maybe it could have used a few more years in gestation. Um, Although I know fans are loving Mm -hmm. it, so, you know, it might be one of those things where, like, critics don't love it, but, like, it's going to stay open forever anyway, so whatever. Wait, were you the one I talked to who told me the Olaf puppet is creepy? No, I didn't tell you that, but I believe you. I mean, I know I've seen I've seen a lot of <laughs> Olaf puppets on Times Square who are creepy. I can tell you that. Like, or Olaf, mm-hmm. um, people dressed as Olaf <laughs> in Times Square. Olaf should not be six feet tall. Mm-hmm. No, that yeah. seems wrong. He should yeah, be but small. He's just standing there with all, like, the blue Elmos and, like, the discount Iron Man people. <laughs> let's, uh, oh, let's play, anyway, um, let's um, play okay. America from Sorry. the movie. Um, we'll skip to the part where Bernardo's Great. singing. Great, okay.
America. Oh, this is the best song of all time. So good. Buying on credit is so nice. One look at us and they charge twice. I have my own washing machine. What will you have though to keep clean? Skyscrapers bloom in America. Adalacs bloom in America. Industry boom in America. Boom in a room in America. Have a little vocal flourish. That girl sings in America. So also, good. I love in 12 in a room in America, they all jump into each other's arms. It's... Mm-hmm. I know I said just recently on our ranking of musical theater songs that Heaven on Their Minds is the best musical theater song, but it might actually yes, which be it America. Is. How dare you? Um, you know, uh, we should add that Jeremy and I are going to watch the uh, Jesus Christ Superstar live tonight. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that'll help us having them really, considering both really back, truly back to I've back. genuinely almost never been as excited for anything in my entire life as I am for the live version <laughs> of Jesus Christ Superstar tonight with John Legend. Know that Jeremy just got engaged. So. Well, I mean, when I talk about being excited for a thing, I'm thinking like a discreet event that like I'm looking forward to. Because right. there have been things that like I might enjoy watching more, but like... It's it's not like it's not like I'm anticipating a moment or something, you know. But like this is like I've been anticipating uh-huh. this moment of Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be a fun time. I think we're probably gonna release an episode we probably about will. it too. Um, one thing that actually we owe one, it to one the thing fans, those songs okay. have in common anyway. actually, um, and this is something I like in songs a lot in general is unconventional time signatures. Um, most song almost mm-hmm. yeah, almost so every good. song on Broadway is just in four four time like one two three four one two mm-hmm. three four and you'll get the occasional waltz like one two three one two three um, a little night music uh, by Sondheim is filled with waltz I don't know even know if it's every song in that is a waltz there's just a few of them uh, but anyway waltzes are mm-hmm. common on Broadway as well though less common than the four four time um, this song uh, America it's kind of in six. Uh, six eight time, which is you know not uncommon. Six eight, it's like one two three, one two three, one two three, like or one two three, two two three, like it's that kind of thing. So it's kind of in two, but then each of the two beats has three sub beats. Is kind of how it works. Yeah, it's kind of a nine. Well, so so it's one two three, one two three, one two one two one two one two three, one two three, one two one two one two. So the whole thing is in six eight, but it's alternating measures of one two three, one two three, and then one two one two one two. So it's sort of splitting between a measure that's in two and a measure that's in three. Um, but each time, like, technically in the same time signature of six, eight. And that is really interesting and very unusual. Like, one, two, three, yeah. So there's that. And then Heaven on Their Minds, I also really like. There's a part, and this is way weirder than America in some ways. There's a seven, eight part. It's like, Nazareth, you're famous. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Like, it's seven, eight, which I... It's so I don't good. Think I've I mean, heard, I don't I'm think a I've drummer, heard that. and I love non-normal time signatures. Yeah. <laughs> it's I'm so obsessed. fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, it gives it like an internal. Um, it feels like it's wound very tightly. Like it gives it an internal sense of drive and like stutter stop. That's really uh, fun and just like not a ballad. Also, I feel like a lot of the songs, to be honest, on West Side Story, kind of like fall into the category of a ballad. That's not true. Not a lot, but several. And I'm just you love you like a ballad. Mm-hmm. I don't love a ballad. And part of why I love America is, like, it's very not a ballad. It's also, like, it doesn't even per se move the plot forward is kind of what I love about it. Like, I mean, we learn about, um, I mean, it talks about racism, essentially, and immigration. um, But it's also kind of a party song and a dance song. And it's upbeat. And it's, like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, It's great. Um, It's so good. It's wonderful. Um, Another, Mm -hmm. wow. Disgustingly beautiful. (laughs) 
before we get off the topic of unconventional time signatures, I'll say one of my other favorite songs in Great. the whole world. I don't think of it as a Broadway song, but actually it was in a Best Musical winner from Once. I'm, I've never actually seen the live Once musical. I was a fan of the oh. movie. But there's the song When Your Mind's Made Up, um, which I think is maybe the best song that mm-hmm. shows. When your mind's made up, when your mind's made up. But it's when you're one, to, it's, it, it, okay, it's hard to sing, but it's in 5-4, basically. <laughs> when your mind's made up from Once. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a song in 5-4. And like how... Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar in Heaven on Their Minds there's like a couple measures of 7-4 and then it just goes back to 4-4 but When Your Mind's Made Up is an entire song in 5-4 which is about as weird and out there as I've ever heard of in a Broadway show um, even though it's written for a movie especially like a rock song in 5-4 really weird I adore that song um, that'd be interesting I, I, want, I should think more about this uh, I'd be interested to think about like other Broadway songs that are not in 4-4 there that would make for a good mini sode, actually. Or 6-8. Six, or six, yeah, or 6-8. Just talking about songs that are in weird time signatures. Yeah. I would love that. That would be, be the uh, good mini sode for well, like, both of us to it. be on. Mm-hmm. All right. You know what? I think this is probably a good time to the audience to end episode one of this two-part conversation. Hannah and I are going to stick around and talk more about the rest of this. But we've given you a taste of talking about the show itself. We've given you the history. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, be sure to check back in next week. We're going to uh, <laughs> dive a Cool. We'll continue. Um, right. Yeah, we'll get we'll get into it because there's just so much more to Absolutely. say. There's so many more songs to talk about, and then we'll, we'll rank, rank it. it. Be sure to subscribe to Broadway Binge on any podcast apps so that you'll be able to get each episode as soon as it comes out. You can also find all of our episodes along with links and pictures at our website broadwaybinge.podbean.com, and you can check us out on Twitter at Broadway underscore Binge, where you can join the conversation and leave us a tweet which we might even read on the air. At this point, we probably will read it on the air because we have few enough tweets that we can have the time to do that. And don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes, which will help more people discover the podcast. All right, bye, everyone. I hope you enjoyed. Bye, everyone. <laughs>